This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Post Questionnaire. 35 questions giving us insight into what makes creative people tick. Okay, Amitafu. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. That is the greeting from uh, Shaolin Temple where I met Sophia Chang. The baddest bitch in the room. That's right. You've known her for a long time. Tell us about Sophia Chang. Tell us about the dojo. Tell us what we're about to hear on this interview. A really uh, incredibly impressive and empathic person. So Sophia was the manager for the RZA and for several other musicians in the Wu-Tang Clan. Mm -hmm. Uh, D'Angelo, she's managed sort of hip-hop and uh, rhythm and blues musicians. Mm -hmm. As a Canadian um, woman of Asian descent, she's Canadian-Korean. And so she works in a world, she lives in a world where she is really someone who is not expected to be there. Right. And she made her place. She claims her space. And I met her training at a Shaolin temple downtown with Shifu Shi Yanming, who is the father of her children, and was always incredibly impressed by her seriousness that is sort of, in a strange way, truly compassionate. Hmm. She's present to be with you. Yeah. And I actually think the beginning of this interview is really interesting how she becomes so present so readily. Yeah. in this conversation. Yeah. That, I mean, as is so often the case when we talk to these amazing people, I left the interview thinking about all the things I need to do better about my, just the way I think about the world and her ability to be present right. in the present moment. Um, and as you say, to kind of combine real toughness with real compassion and open-heartedness right. is, I think, rare and incredibly appealing. Um, And yeah, Baddest Bitch in the Room is also the title of her memoir, which is fantastic. It's fun that we get these very accomplished people who do other things, but many of them also write really well. And what a great memoir. And it's a beautiful book of um, the path of somebody who um, comes from a background where what she was doing ultimately was circumscribed by her parents' expectations. But she surpassed it in a really creative way. Great. No, this is one of our great interviews. It's really fun to hear. So Sophia, 
uh, it is such a joy to see you and have you uh, on our podcast, The Proust Questionnaire, today. Welcome. Vielen Dank, Herr Bell. <laughs> I love hanging out with Uli because I can, I can exercise my really limited German. It's We're so, done with the German now, right? That was it. Yeah, that's... Three more words, I think. There might be a little <laughs> bit more. I might, yeah, something might squeeze out of the gray matter, but I think we're done. But thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> okay. So um, Carol and I are here. We're going to ask you the questions that Proust asked the first time, and Caroline doesn't know. Maybe she knows this. Oh, she does know this about you. You majored in French I did. in college. So Proust That's is dear to you, and you gave all that up for hip-hop, so we're going to get did. back to Proust. I did. <laughs> we can get back to Proust, and I, I remember so, virtually nothing, although I wrote one of my greatest essays about him. I don't remember anything about it, though. It happens. Yeah. I feel like Proust in this day and age would have approved of the choice of hip-hop over Proust. I agree. So, yes. So the first question is, um, what is your idea of perfect happiness? This. I mean, Oli, you trained with me. You know we Shaolin Kung Fu and Chan Buddhism. And so the notion of describing what my perfect happiness is, it doesn't, Honestly, it doesn't really resonate with me because I, I can only think about this right now. And I'm really, really happy uh -huh. right now it, because mm -hmm. it's all about being present. Mm -hmm. But if I expand on that, of course, it, it's all going to be all about my children's happiness. Okay. Um, next question is, what is your greatest fear? I'm almost afraid to say it, but I think any parent's greatest fear is something terrible befalling their children. Well, knock knocking, on wood. Well, yeah. knocking on wood. Knocking on wood. Right. It's, right. you know, it's an abject, primal, right. visceral fear. Um, what is the trait you most deplore in yourself? I don't deplore anything about myself. You should probably oh, do that again. Sorry. Um, do you want me to do that again? Okay, <coughs> no, sorry. it's going. My bad. Um, Well, and this, you may have the same answer for this question, and it's definitely very non-Buddhist. What is the trait you most deplore in others? I, I, okay, so I can tell you the things that I don't like about others. Deplore is such a strong word for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I never use the word hate. Um, it takes a lot for me to use a word like hate, deplore, abom you know, what I think find abominable. But what I do despise in people is a lack of empathy. And a lack of empathy, an extension of that is, and you know, we, we see this play out every day. A lack of empathy to me is inextricably tied to an inability to see others as human. Yeah. You, you know, if you don't empathize with someone, you rob them of their humanity. And I think that's a profound crime against anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember this from your French literary studies, but Rousseau, um, in one of his sort of pseudo-anthropological essays about primitive man, mm -hmm, and he mm -hmm. uses those terms, um, says that the distinguishing feature of primitive man relative to the animals or the plants or any other being uh, is the capacity, in fact, for empathy, for, for empathy. compassion. Mm -hmm. So that's um, as unpopular as Rousseau may be as an anthropologist today. There are a lot of problems. It's a, it, I didn't it's know a that. Really He's unpopular nice as an anthropologist? I think so because it's not really evidence-based. You know, he was a novelist and, so, and a philosopher, and so he wrote a kind of a natural history of the world and of evolution as he imagined it to have taken place. But there are those moments that are really, really great in what he wrote. Oh, what, and yeah. have people 
people don't read study the social contract anymore? They do. They, if they're taking my class, they do. Um, and that, I think, is political theory. He's a little more still appreciated. I see. So it's, yeah. so it's, it's existing in two different exactly. disciplines. Yeah. Oh, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you're remembering all the Rousseau you had to read, that was, it was not, you weren't reading yes. someone completely discredited. But right. um, okay, good. that is the one piece of that essay that I really love is this idea of, you know, yes. what makes us human. Is I have that to go, human... I have to go look for that. Yeah. Oh, I'll send, I'll send you a, please do a reference. Um, which living person do you most admire? Me. Hmm. I mean, that's not to say that I think I am the greatest living human, but I am the person that I admire the most, and that is tied directly to my parents. Hmm. You know, I can't talk about myself. Am I allowed to curse? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Oli, you you listened to my memoir. I say in my memoir that it took a motherfucking village to raise Sophia Chang. <laughs> So in saying that I admire myself more than anybody else, I cannot say that without acknowledging the people who helped create me and bring me here. I'm not sitting, I'm not sitting before you saying I am self-made, self-taught, that somehow I'm some autodidact and I pulled myself up on my bootstraps and gosh darn it, I just did, you know, right. I just made it. But I love myself, I honor myself. I value myself. And I think you know, the title of my memoir is The Baddest Bitch in the Room. I, best title I've come across <laughs> really you. possibly ever. And I, I like that it's, not, it's, you say it's your parents, um, which is deeply moving, but then there's other families you've lived in. Oh, sure. I mean, there's, so it's, it's my parents, it's my brother, Hesok Chang, whom I always say is the 10 smartest people I know. He's a tenured English professor at Vassar, and he, he, you know, he gets quoted throughout the memoir, quotes himself throughout the memoir. Of course, it's my children. And then I have an astonishing, what I call, alliteratively, I call it my um, carefully curated coterie of consiglieri. So I have amazing friends, and I think that and Uli knows this. Um, at both my 40th and my 50th birthdays, I went around the room toasting my friends. And at my 50th, they decided that they were going to toast me as well. And what many of them said was, I cannot believe the astonishing array of people at this table. Mm-hmm. So what do they all have in common besides our friendship and our love is that they are brilliant and they are passionate and they are empathetic and they are kind and they are just and they believe in something greater than themselves and believe in fighting for something greater than themselves and you know that it could be whether it's a writer or whether it's a computational biologist whether it's a professor whether it's a journalist you know there are just so many people and I've worked very 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 hard over the decades you know, um, as a French major, il faut cultiver son jardin. Oui, tout à fait. Yeah. Right. And I don't actually know, I looked it up, I don't actually know if that's what Candide meant, but that's, how, I mean, that's what Voltaire meant, mm-hmm. but that's how I take it. Yeah. Hmm. Il faut que je cultive mon jardin. Yeah. And to cultivate, and, and my garden is my family. And then, of course, you know, then there's Wu-Tang Clan. I say, my name is Sophia Chang, and I was raised by Wu-Tang, and their significance in my story is profound. Sophia, what is your greatest extravagance? 
my greatest extravagance would be shoes and clothing. But I, ha- but I want to, I, I want to interrogate extravagance a little bit too, because I think extravagance implies that surely it's something that we don't necessarily need, right? So we're not talking about a necessity, and I and I get that. But I push back on the notion that it's not something we should do, or rather, something we should feel guilty about. Right, and I know that you're not necessarily inferring yeah. that, Uli, but I think that I others. It's implied, I, think. I think it's implied. And, and 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 so for me, I work my ass off. So if I want to spend seven hundred and fifty dollars on a pair of shoes, I'm going to do it, and I don't feel one iota of guilt because I'm still keeping everything else in balance. Mm-hmm. You know, I was raised by immigrant parents. My mother escaped from North Korea at 14. My father, you, you know his harrowing story of escaping, uh, being conscripted by the Korean army as well. And, you know, I think this is the experience for many first-gen immigrants, and that is that you watch your parents sacrifice virtually everything for you. And I'll never forget, he said to me, you know, Sophia, don't you ever get tired of watching mom subjugate every one of her needs and desires for us. And again, I think that pretty much every Asian immigrant that I've spoken to, child of immigrant, they all have the same experience. But I am a different generation. I'm a bridge generation. And so I will do stuff like get a massage, pay to upgrade to business class. You know what I'm saying? Like my mother will never ever do something like that yeah. and and here I separate myself from my mother you know we all buy our you know at a certain point we get where we get to the point where we can buy our parents nice things so you know we bought my mother a cashmere sweater and it just lives in mothballs I don't do that right <laughs> I'm going to wear my cashmere until I wear holes in it but this is a different it's a very different ethos and neither one is right nor wrong it's hardly an indictment of my mother that's how the fuck she was raised mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. so I yes if I'm going to say the thing that I indulge in that I need the least then it is certainly clothes and shoes but I absolutely resist the notion of any sort of judgment that I sh- should feel guilty about it or shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. it Wear the cashmere, buy the shoes. Absolutely. Um, what is your current state of mind? Bliss. Always. What do you consider the most overrated virtue? <laughs> um, I don't know if people call this a virtue, but uh, being non judgmental. You know, oh, all right. I think that's such bullshit when people say, "Oh, I'm not judging." You're fucking judging. We. This is how we exist within a society. So all of this, it is what it is. Right. You. You. Right. Sounds fake already as a statement. Right. Of. Yeah. I hate that saying. I that's actually. I, I can't it stand it. It is yeah. the most. Say nothing. Do nothing. Right. The notion <laughs> that we don't judge, is preposterous. You have to judge. We teach our children how to judge between what is right and what is wrong, what is strong and what is weak. So if I see somebody behaving in a certain way, yes, I am judging you. You're being a fucking prick, right? Mm, the, right. The, because I almost feel like I almost feel like saying I'm not judging. It's almost an abdication of responsibility, mm, mm-hmm. you know, because this is how we engage. So I, I think that that's just... 
I think it's a bullshit. I think it's thing also a weird sentence that people say, I don't judge, meaning, oh, I won't judge you. Please don't judge me. And then I think, what's wrong with you? Right. Why don't you judge yourself, actually? Why don't right. you actually think about what you're doing right or wrong? Because right. it sort of says, please don't judge me. Right. But right. maybe right. you should put yourself to that and say, I'm going to judge my own behavior here. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And also, you know, we all went through, you know, we all were in academia for a spell and it's critical thinking. Right. Right. And critical thinking <laughs> necessarily <laughs> involves judgment. That's right. You don't get a pass. And I mean, th- this is what drives at least me crazy with my students when they say something like, well, I really feel like in this poem, like, show me how, show me where you're making a judgment. But right. But hearing you talk also kind of and I would have never put these two things together before makes me wonder if there isn't a case to be made for a, an interrelationship between judgment and empathy, right? That sure. if you're holding yourself back from humanity or you're, arrog- yeah. you're claiming for yourself a special place right. above judgment, right. then you're not in relation to the rest of humanity. Well, you're not engaging. You right. It's, it's part of how we engage. Look, yeah. I would say something like, like, let's say that my girlfriend says or a, a boyfriend, a male friend says, I'm having an affair. I'd say, okay, I'm not judging you for that. And I'm not. Right. Unless you're hurting somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. But as this kind of blanket, there's there's a there's almost a condescension and an arrogance to it. Yeah, you right. know, you oh, that, I right. don't judge. Yes, you right. fucking do. Yeah. At least own up to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, this is me. On what occasion do you lie? Hmm. On what occasion do I lie? Um, I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I think it's part of, I think you, I mean, Uli knows me and Uli has now listened to seven and a half hours of me. I think <laughs> what people appreciate about me is that I'm very, very frank about the good, about the bad, about my strengths, about my frailties. So I don't really, and I'm not saying I don't lie. I do. I just can't think of it right now. Mm -hmm. You know, when I've done public speaking, and particularly when I go to academic institutions, people come up to me, and this is the weirdest thing, you guys. They will say to me, students will come up to me, and they'll say, oh, my God, thank you for being so honest. And I think, who the fuck is speaking here? And they're like, you have no idea who the administration brings in to speak, and they don't feel like they're getting honesty. And I just don't understand. What's the point of writing a memoir if you're not going to be honest? I think what they mean also is that your work, so in your memoir and in your daily life, you connect being yourself with how you think and act. And this connection is people can be honest and people can be themselves, but they have very little to say. You have something to say, and you make that connection between your, when you come to university and in your book. You want to also share your knowledge, your experience, and teach something. Gotcha. But that's connected to you. Understood. Mm-hmm. I think this connection is what they mean. Interesting. I don't, people yeah. are, the other people are not lying or false, but it's not connected to who they are. Understood. And they might not be presenting it's it as such. It's abstract knowledge. Yeah. Right. It's something yeah. they studied and understood and rehearsed, and they have a lot, all sorts of knowledge, but it doesn't connect to life yeah. or mm-hmm. to their life. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Yeah. yeah. No, that's why we need people like you coming to speak in academia, because I think it's true that generally all of us are trained to, to take a position of detachment from whatever knowledge we're supposed to be imparting. And well, I can see how that would feel 
dishonest or false to people who are looking for right. something more. But I want to give you a good example. So when I interviewed Caroline mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on my other podcast mm-hmm. about Proust, mm-hmm. you said something very, very personal of why you reread Proust oh, later yeah. in life. Yeah, it yeah. was very personal and very poignant. And that connection, why someone would spend so much time studying an author. Mm. You could study many authors. They're all very smart. They give you lots of wisdom. But mm-hmm. this is not connected wisdom. This mm-hmm. is not grounded in life. So right. what you said, your answer was actually, I read this author and it touched something in me, a chord in me that then I could speak from. Yeah. So you're speaking not from knowledge, but from experience. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, it's, this and connection is a hard thing to get to. Right. And something resonated with you. So you reread Alors Recherche du Temps Perdu. <laughs> All I of ne- it. Several All times. of it. <laughs> I never even, look, I think I got a 93 on the paper. I didn't even read the whole thing. Oh, God. But yeah. <laughs> well, there's always That's time. Okay. That happens. <laughs> and there is always time. And I will tell you, Proust is the one person I can name where the book absolutely gets better the older you get. Really? Almost, yeah. Almost every time I teach. Did you read it in French? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you, I mean, and you could read it in French, but you could read it in English. The translations are good if Mm -hmm. you're, you know, if one, you find one of those more easily. But I would say, and Uli's maybe heard me say this, that every time I teach Proust, you know, we have a 13-week academic seminar. There are seven volumes of Proust. They're all kind of long. It's really hard to get all, all, the whole thing in, in one semester. And the only people I think who always do are the retired people who are auditing (laughs) my class. Because they have the time and also they have the wisdom to understand. And they've practiced. And they've practiced. So my brother and another friend of mine, Kevin, who also teaches, Mm. said, is this your experience that students don't read as much as they used to? Yeah. Uh, For me, absolutely. I think we all have a harder time reading. I have a harder time reading. Oh, for sure I do. That little phone keeps calling me while they don't even have any interesting thing to say to me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's Sophia bugging me again. Leave me alone. That's, no, that's, that's something he wants to be said to him. But yeah, it's hard to, for me. Yeah, it's hard to make the the choice yeah. of the phone over Proust once you see how great that writer is. But I think you're right. I think your yeah. brother and your friend are right. I think that I think so. attention spans have gotten shorter yeah. for everyone. Students that we have today, with all due respect to the undergraduate in the room, right. Christina, um, yeah. students don't grow up the way that we did yeah. where you would, your parents would probably sit you down with a right. nice long right. book. Or I and saw my parents reading. Yeah. Well, my parents, my kids don't see me reading. <laughs> <laughs> but now, the truth th- comes thanks out. to technology, we can listen to Sophia exactly. Chang's book. Yes. <laughs> so there's an audio book. So there's that. <laughs> okay, now this takes us so far back from reading and all the, and Proust and these meaty questions. And I have, I Let's even see. not knowing you at all, Sophia, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but what do you dislike about your appearance? Nothing. What do you most dislike about your appearance? Nothing. I mean, yes, I could. Yes, I could sit here and say to you, "Oh, you know, uh, I have these wrinkles, and I've got these age spots, and there are certain things that I'm noticing." Like, I, but I don't dislike it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you, I could certainly, I could certainly um, give you an inventory of the things that I think are <laughs> flaws, but I also don't call them flaws. Right. Um, which living person do you most despise? Donald Trump. Okay. Preach. Yeah. <laughs> what is the quality you most like in a man? And Uli and I are a little feel a little awkward about the gendering of these questions, but they're as they were written in the 1880s. So, so uh, I guess what I'd ask you then is, do you mean in a man as a partner or in a man period? I think in a man period. I think in a man yeah. period. I mean, your choice, but my my feeling is... What's the quality that I'm most 
like. Yeah. Yes. Appreciate. Appreciate. Um, hmm. Honesty. And this kind of goes to Oli's point. This is not just about promise you won't ever lie to me, but this is also <laughs> about honesty about yourself, honesty with yourself. You know, I believe deeply in self-interrogation, self-examination, self-criticism, self-renewal, self-love, self-care, self-actualization. I think all of those things are deeply tied, but you can't really do those in a robust and profound fashion unless you are honest with yourself. And yes, and of course, to be honest with others as well. And I would say the same thing for women. Hmm. What is the quality you most like in a woman? Same. Same for a woman. Yeah. Okay. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? Obviously. 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 <laughs> <laughs> What or How do you say that in German? Uh, uh, probably natur natürlich. 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 Yeah. yeah. Good one. Yeah. Oh, you know <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We knew when more was going to come out. Yeah, and évidemment, which gets mistranslated as right. evidently right. Um, false friend. Uh, <laughs> what or who is the greatest love of your life? My children are the greatest love of my life. But in terms of romance... I, I, I can't put a superlative on it because they were different, but... Yan Ming, with whom Uli trained, was the great love of my life because we had children together and he also taught me the greatest spiritual lessons of my life and helped me turn my body into a temple. And more recently, I talk about him in my memoir, somebody named William who was in some ways just the polar opposite of Yan Ming, and we all tend to do this, I think who um, was just so attentive. You know, when I was with the father of my children, it was all about him, and that was me. I chose to do that. I was not, nobody held a gun to my head. And being with this guy, William, was very, very different because he was so focused on me and so attentive, and the sex was incredible. You know, it's nice <laughs> when I listen to your memoir. They are like characters in a play because I know some of them, but other yeah. ones I don't. But actually, William is someone I really would want to meet. Yeah, There's he's amazing. A, such an um, such a kind of giving and yeah. uh, supportive person. Really interesting. But it's kind of nice you draw him as a character, and I have no idea who yeah. that is. So he he actually called me last week and he said, um, I he listened to my memoir and I don't know like a day, and he just said, oh, I'm I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy, and it's really amazing, Oli. Like. I've, I've never been friends with my exes. I've never done that. And he and I, actually, I would say we're less friends than we are lovers, but I didn't know that I would emotionally ever be mature enough to get to this place. And it's awesome. When and where were you happiest? Same answer as before, here. Here now. Yeah, here now. I just, I just think to do that thing... <laughs> to pose that question to yourself is it, it, it's it's attachment to a nostalgia and I talk about this as well in my memoir like why for me I would question the question 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not you, obviously. Mm-hmm. Question the question. Right. Yeah, sure. Why would we put ourselves through the exercise? Because the implication, of course, is, it is, is that it's not now. Right. So let me hearken back to this time, you guys. Oh, yeah. I was 17, and I was the, I was the head cheer. You know, like, mm. no. Then that's also so sad. Right. <laughs> because, right. Because yeah. yeah because it's the, 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 it is always about something in the à la recherche du temps perdu. Voilà. Yeah. Right. C'est perdu, mais c'est pas perdu. C'est, c'est maintenant. C'est ici. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's funny. My brother and I used to cringe because my father repeatedly told us that the happiest time of his life was the summer of 1957. Before the children were born? Before we were born. <laughs> and before he met my mom. So we would look around the yeah. dining room table and think, God, all of us represent a serious downgrade from when dad had like yeah. a convertible and he was in high school. Yeah, he's, he's like, albatross, albatross, uh, albatross. <laughs> <laughs> totally, oh, for the good old days of 1957. Exactly. I didn't have this, to deal right, with this, these people. This, this yearning, I know. right? This, I know. And, but it's also a very, um, when was this When was this written? 18, 1880s. 18, is that the romantic? Is that the? It's a little bit after the post romantic. Right? It's, it's yeah. post romantic, but it's kind of that. It, it, it makes sense for the time, yeah. don't you think? Right. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. No, I think so, and I think for someone like Proust, who did have that model of thinking, one of the, uh, one of his great kind of relatively pithy lines for Proust is the only real paradises are the ones we have lost, and he profoundly believes that. But my feeling is that you profoundly don't, and the wiser of the two positions I think is is not believing that well believing he's you can have it now right well he's not a Buddhist he's right not a Buddhist. I mean what no. what I'm talking about is a very central tenet in Buddhism well he's an artist and the strange thing is and he writes a 3,200 page novel <laughs> to allow us to hold on to happiness right while he's searching and making us putting us on this kind of wild goose chase right but art is an effort to hold on to time, mm-hmm. right? To, to preserve it, it which yeah. only art can possibly maybe come close to, besides yeah. right. being a Buddhist. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> yeah. And with Buddhism, you're not holding on to time; you're letting it go. Right? Absolutely, you're letting it go. Non-attachment, yeah. non-attachment. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, which talent, Uli and I have talked about this question and how it's again sort of somewhat strangely phrased. Presumably, which talent that you do not have would you most like to have? I don't know. I don't care. Have you ever dreamed of playing the oboe? Right. Like, uh, would it be great to be an amazing downhill skier or fencer? I don't know. Would it be great to be an amazing litigator? I mean, (laughs) you know. Litigation hasn't yet come up. Or, you know, a phenomenal chef. I mean, that list could is endless to me. But I think, again, what's more important is that I never think that way. Mm -hmm. Right. I never think about hypotheticals in terms of wouldn't my life be, if I was taller if I was thinner if I was white if I was blonde if I was young if my tits were bigger if my hair was longer if I was rich if I was fit why mm-hmm. why and I think that we are socialized to think that way right but I have an issue with the problem so mm-hmm. yeah literally I could sit here and list a myriad things that I would be great to be talented at mm-hmm. we're going to get you the next question which if you could change one thing about yourself what would it be my impatience I think I would wish I was more patient I thought you were going to say that from based on the book. Yeah. You talk mm-hmm. about that, how patience wasn't the one thing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and also because, Uli, you know, I also say in my talk about in my memoir that I, by philosophically, and I think this is also tied to being Buddhist, I do not live with regret, but my only regrets is when I was a shitty mother. Mm-hmm. And that is almost always 
be from a lack of patience. Losing patience. Yeah. What What do you consider your greatest achievement? My children. Nice. Who are awesome. Thank you. <laughs> lucky, lucky children. They're not traumatized by you telling them that your life was much better before before they existed. <laughs> <laughs> I need this woman as my life coach. Um, if you were to die and come back as another person or a thing, who or what would that be? Me. I come back and do it all over again. And I I would probably change things, like try to be more patient. But again, I just don't think in those terms. So, uh, And again, that doesn't mean that I think that I'm the greatest person in the world or that I'm anything so extraordinary. I just know that I love me and I love my life. And I've worked so hard to be here. And as a Buddhist, I believe that I will be reincarnated and kesara sara. It's out of my hands. Um, Where would you most like to live? Where I live now. Okay. This is a very un-Buddhist questionnaire overall, I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Actually, I don't know a thing about Buddhism, but I don't think that Buddhists don't know these questions. Mm-hmm. They actually spend quite a lot of time to think yes. through these mm-hmm. questions. I think you know, Goli, you know plenty about Buddhism. Well, I try. Of course you I do. train every day. I, I don't, yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I train every day. I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert in Buddhism. I always feel like I'm, the, I'm still in the beginner class. Like, of course we are. Of course we are. I mean, but I, I'm no expert no, in that's Buddhism. That's what I mean. Actually, I think the, the beauty about Buddhism Oh, I think that they think about these questions, yeah. oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, and they're also, quite aware that those questions are the ones and that's that get in the, the way. Practice, that's what the practice is and, for, to address Right, it. and for me, my study of Buddhism was through training in right. Kung Fu. It wasn't reading text. I can't quote things for you. Like, I can't, the four, you know, the, four, the eight noble, tr- all that stuff. I can't name all that. I just know that I lived and breathed and had children with and was partnered with and trained with a Chan Buddhist master. Hmm. So what I gathered from that is how I live my life. And in so doing, I call myself a Buddhist. But, you know, if you sit me down to write a test, I'd fail <laughs> if there's such a thing. I remember you saying to me very early on when I started training, and you said, you know, it's not the kind of temple where you go up, meditate on a silk pillow, right. and then you walk downstairs and start screaming at the guy at the deli. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, why is it that's not the idea of Buddhism we have here? Oh Actually, you are supposed to be training and you're supposed to be in this all day all the long time, and right. all night long all and with time. everybody. But it's not, oh, I did my one hour of yeah. training and now I'm going to be an asshole again. He said, right. that, he, he said that is not the point of this temple. And, right. I, thought, and I didn't understand it for a long time. Oh, now I know. Oh, yeah. and, also, and also, Ali, knowing you and watching you train, you, you've adopted it. You have. And we don't do it in any overt way. And I think that was the genius of Yan Ming and is the genius of Yan Ming is that he's so led by example. I mean, he literally in 12 years, literally never complained. I didn't. I literally and you and you know this and you believe it ever, ever, ever. I would fetch about the rain. Oh, my God, it's raining. And he would always say, Sophia, the trees and the flowers need the rain. So they're happy. And he meant it. And I mean, I was with him 24-7. Wow. It's not like it was a facade. This is essentially, constitutionally, who he is. And I just think right. that's so amazing. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. 
What is your most treasured possession? Mm. My most treasured possession would be, I have to think about that. What's the thing that I would really, really be crushed if I lost? Um, probably photos. Probably childhood photos and photos of my parents. Mm -hmm. What do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? Not being present. Not knowing how to live right here, right now. Either always being burdened by the past, like your albatross, mm -hmm. or always being stressed about the future. And that doesn't mean that you're not informed by your past or you don't ruminate and you don't, you know, think about, oh, remember this and remember that, or that you don't plan for the future. Of course we do. We have children. But the notion that you don't truly know how to be present means that you are not truly living, mm -hmm. right? If you're always back there or up there, you're never right here. Quelle misère. Yeah. Uh, what, the question is, what is your favorite occupation? We think it means what would be your favorite occupation, occupation if you could right. choose right now? What I'm doing, writing, mm. and it'll change. Mm -hmm. What is your most marked characteristic? And we think that means what do other people, what do you think they perceive first about you? Confidence. Confidence. Mm. I'm the baddest bitch in the <laughs> <Exactly>. room. <laughs> I, I'm not seeing the confidence in that title. It should have been a little more. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We have to deconstruct it. Let's put it on a whiteboard and just go through it word by word. It's not quite lean in. It's a little more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Yeah. I, you should have pushed harder for something that really, really showcased. Yeah. It's a little trepidatious. I know. I'm sorry about that. Um, I hate to have to be the one to tell you after it's already out. Um, and, I, and Sophia, I think you've already answered this question, but it's come back. Uh, as as one of the questions that we we ask in this sequence, what do you most value in your friends? Um, honesty. And again, there are two sides to the honesty coin. So to deconstruct honesty in terms of a friendship, Schadenfreude. There's another German word. Again with the German. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it's human that we experience Schadenfreude, right? Yeah. But if you can be honest with about your love, and my um, one of my mentors, Sonia Chang, God rest her soul, used to say to me, go to the love, So Go to the love. Mm. So let's say Uli mm -hmm. has some accomplishment, and I'm experiencing ein bisschen Schadenfreude, right? <laughs> but when I go to the love mm -hmm. and my I'm honestly thinking about how much I love Oli. I am so happy for him. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, if I see Oli fuck up, I love him enough that I'll pull him aside and I'll say, Oli, you know what? I know you thought you were making an off, you know, just a casual joke there, but I think you really hurt her feelings, right? Mm -hmm. So I have friends like that again, my motherfucking village, that hmm. will not hold back, you know? They'll just be unabashedly joyous, 
for my success. And they are honestly there when I'm hurting or I'm vulnerable or I feel betrayed or disappointed. And then again, they will gently admonish me with honesty. And all of that takes love. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. That's nice. Who are your favorite uh, writers? If you have any. Uh, gosh, I have so many. I mean, off the top of my head, I would say Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, I think he's astonishing. <laughs> um, Joan Morgan, Casey Lehman. Um, I, you know, we all grew up on hip hop. We're all of the same generation. And so there's a commonality of experience, a generational commonality there. And the richness of their prose is astonishing. <clears throat> and then I would say Jizza from Wu-Tang, you know, all the guys in Wu-Tang. Um, and then going back, my favorite novel is uh, L'Etranger. Oh. I think I've read it five times. Wow. You know, I read My Father, God Rest His Soul, um, the final paragraph in that as he was dying. You know, um, he says, uh, uh, he, uh, he says something, to, you know, he, he's just been visited, Marceau has just been visited by the priest. Mm -hmm. And then he yells at him and tells him to get out, I think. And then he says um, something like, uh, Je m'ouvrais à l'indifférence de l'univers, something like that. Like, I open myself to the benign indifference of the, of the universe. Wow. And he said, Et Je découvrais ou, or uh, je comprenais pourquoi à la, tout à la fin de sa vie, ma mère trouvait Retrouver l'amour. Because remember, he was, yeah. Marceau was disgusted by the notion of his mother, yes. à l'asile, mm -hmm. si, pr si près de la mort, à l'asile, si près de la mort. Yeah. So close to death that she found love again. Mm -hmm. And then he realizes in this moment when he is about to be executed, of course, of yeah. course you wanted to find love. Et personne, personne n'avait le droit de juger. Mm -hmm. Right. Judgment right. again, yeah. right? Yeah. So that is, I mean, I love that. Um, and I also really loved The Alchemist. There's a passage in The Alchemist that I also read to my father as he was right. dying. And there's this really beautiful passage where they're now on the journey. He's with The Alchemist going across the desert. And he says to him, is he, is, is he traveling with an alchemist? Is that his traveling companion? Yeah. That's how I remember uh, Right, it. and he says, and the alchemist says to the young boy, because remember, the young boy is in love with the girl. Mm -hmm. And he says something like, um, the boy's like, how will I know when my heart is ready? And then the alchemist says, always go in search of what your heart is yearning for. Because... The search itself brings you closer to God. And not going on the search. Alors ça, mm -hmm. c'est l'enfer. Right? That is the pain. And I feel that so deeply. So I've, you know, I, 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 I said this in, a, in an interview recently. 
I never told my kids to be perfect or even strive for perfection. Fuck perfection. I don't really care about your grades. I care that you are good, kind, just, empathetic people, right? And I don't care about money, fame, success, any of those things by anybody else's barometers. What I care about is that I tried. Mm -hmm. And so what does failure mean to me? Failure means that I didn't try. The result, right? Because the result is beyond my control. So I write this memoir, and I wrote the shit out of it, and I poured my heart and soul into that memoir. And if two people buy it, two people buy it. But I wrote it. Yeah. Right. Right? right. And I got it out. And so that is an amazing accomplishment for me. And I'm so delighted. I cannot be attached to the outcome. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's that I, c'est que yeah. it's that I tried. And that you, to go back to your quote from the alchemist, that you put your heart into it. Mm-hmm. That that's what, this is one of the things, yeah, my, my husband is an economist and sort of thinks very rationally often. And when I was writing this big book about Proust that came out last summer, he would say to me very gently from time to time, you know, you're working so hard on this, but I, you, you shouldn't maybe necessarily expect that a million people will read it. And mm-hmm. I could see that he was worried that I was He was trying to manage your expectations, right. But, the, but what I always said to him is, you know, if I wanted to be read by a million people, I wouldn't have been writing that. You would write like Danielle Steele. Book. Right. Yeah. So it, and God bless her. And God bless her because she's right. doing what she loves. Absolutely. But like, I could only write the book that I was writing. And I, yeah, I'd love it if a million right. people ever bought it. They never right. will. And I wasn't writing it deliberately to of alienate course. a million people. But <laughs> although that may have happened. But, um, but yeah, the idea that like, it was the book I needed to write, and so no matter what happened to it after it was out in the world, exactly, I right. I couldn't be happier because it was what I wanted to do. Exactly, and and we the lucky few, yeah, well that too. I mean, imagine that we are living and healthy, and we have oh clothing God, yes. and shelter and bountiful food and clean water, doing what we love. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, what is what what is that number? Is it one in? Mm-hmm. 10 million that can say that on this planet mm-hmm. and it's such a profound privilege and you know pursue your passion tell your story whatever that means I did it in a literal fashion but writing about Proust is telling your story writing about Rilke is oh, telling absolutely. your story right 100%. all of these ways being a sculptor or doing even being a lawyer, like my ex-sister-in-law, Carrie Goldberg, she's an attorney. She is telling her story. And the fact that we are given that gift to be able to do what we love and that we are passionate about is something that we should never underestimate. That's right. Um, who is your hero of fiction television or film we think that this is basically just a question about fictional characters who have been meaningful or important to you hmm i don't know well i would say uh milsoul because of that passage from the stranger again uh the alchemist um i also really loved the Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers Karamazov. Nice. I thought that that passage was incredible, but that's also tied to my amazing professor, Ed Hundert, who taught that. Oh. Uh, there's no way I would have connected <clears throat> to Dostoevsky the way that I did, and that passage in particular, if he hadn't taught it that way. Um, I really love Emma Thompson's character in Love Actually. Oh. 
um, her, just her, be- the betrayal is so. It, it is so. So it breaks your heart every Devastating, time. Yeah. and when you see her open the CD box and she thinks it's the jewelry, oh, and then you, and then she runs up to the room and you see her just clutch her stomach and bend over and cry silently. I mean, I've had those moments. Yeah, where you're just, where you're sucker punched, but you're the mother, and it's Christmas. Right. So you hold it together because you fucking have to, right? And I just thought that she, and also just because Emma Thompson is such a sublime actor, you know, I just thought that that was so, I really, that really resonated with me, just her courage and her grit and like, I'm a fucking mother and I'm keeping it together for my family. That's great. I love that character too. And it just, I, I oh. almost can't watch the film because I'm waiting for that moment and yet you're right it's so but it's this bittersweet too. thing right yeah. you want to see it because the because the depiction because the the you know the acting is so sublime and yeah. yet it's so devastating so painful. Oh, yeah. God. yeah which historical figure do you most identify with i don't know i um i don't know that sounds um I can't. I I can't think of anybody that I would say because it would all sound self-aggrandizing. Like what? What, what am I? I identify with Gandhi. Like what? Like I say? Like what, I. I and, he's come, he's come Cleopatra. Up yeah. Cleopatra. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I, right. I don't. I don't think I could comfortably answer that. Number one, I don't think I know. I don't think I know enough about history. Hi, you know, because uh, I'm really shitty at history. But number two, I I just. Yeah, I don't. I, I would not feel comfortable answering that question, and I don't have an answer. Like the way psychics always tell you that you were in a past life, it's never like one of the minions who was building the pyramids. You're always right, like a right. pharaoh. Yeah, or... yeah. I was, I was the one letting people be crushed by the fucking right. the, the the concrete blocks. Right. I want to be that person. <laughs> in that case, your karma really—you've got something to answer for karmically, I suppose. Exactly. Um, who are your heroes in real life? My mother. My father, God rest his soul. My brother, my kids. I mean, my children are... You know, I always said that I wanted to raise benevolent leaders. And I think I've done that really well. You know, this woman recently said to me, my girlfriend, uh, Kimmy Yam, she works at... uh, She used to run uh, HuffPost Asian Voices. And so she's also... Uh, the Asian daughter of immigrants. And she said, you know, Sophia, you're one of the only people that I've ever heard say that you're proud of your children because they're good people. You know, because most people, you know, my kid got into this school. My kid got these grades. My kid's the top of the soccer. I don't give a shit about that. I don't. You know, my legacy, my my greatest contribution to the world will be my children. Mm-hmm. And that's all that matters to me. It's interesting when you say you don't care that he or she is the top of the soccer team and then Yan Ming, their father, raised them to train as hard as they can with mm-hmm. incredible discipline and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. is very, very painful mm-hmm. in order not to fight. In order not, in order not to fight. So you're a yeah. warrior right. and you don't fight because right. you see the aggression and you don't right. lead anywhere. So you train yeah. and he can split Yes. A log and a cinder block in yes. two pieces with yes. his hand. Yes. Oh and he doesn't fight. Yeah. And in some ways to raise your kids to say, I want you to achieve everything you can achieve, mm-hmm. but the measure is not going to be that this right. 
team, this sport, this, Absolutely. this club is going to tell you that right. you're good. The measure is going to be, look, when I'm, when I'm sitting across from God, Buddha, Allah, however you want to name her, she will not ask me, how much money did you make for that company? How much money did you make for yourself? How big was your house? She will ask me, how well did you raise your children and how many people did you help along the way? It's all that matters, and I, I, I believe that I have raised my children to think that the greatest thing they could do is be in service of others, and that takes a myriad, that, that could manifestations, right? Mm-hmm. It's really moving. What are your favorite names? Names? Yeah, favorite names. Oh. Hmm. Um... You know, a name that I always think about that is so beautiful in French but so ugly in English is Hermione. You're so right. Yeah, Hermione doesn't It doesn't. That. Yeah, um, Hermione, you're right. Hermione is so beautiful. Well, we do so love beautiful. Hermione from Harry Potter, though. We do. Oh, that's that true. kind you, of did, you, did make it I, I just want you to know that Oli's house was the <laughs> Harry Potter house, man. Every Everyone of Rafi's birthdays <laughs> for like right. three years, it was all, oh, are you kidding? All Harry, like everything all of that um yes um so i like either, kind of, she's been anglicized and <laughs> yeah beautified yes <laughs> but Elmi, yeah Elmi, i agree with you Elmi i think it's pretty it's so french. pretty in french um i love my name i love sophia because it means wisdom and when i was growing up it was not a popular name at all and i was named uh, my father was a mathematician and he named at me after a polish mathematician uh, i love my children's names you know i think that asian names I think they're, I like them more because they can have so much more depth and so much more meaning. Mm. Because, you know, you choose characters, right? right? So I, I think I'm right in this. Chinese and Korean, and I don't know about Japanese names, but they have two characters, so you can put two characters together. Mm-hmm. So my son is Jin Long, right? Jin means golden, and Long means dragon. My daughter is Jen Hong, and that means uh, Jen is a straight sword, and Hong is um, a homonym. It means red. It's red, but it actually is a homonym for uh, rainbow or fire. And so the the meaning of her name is straight sword that cuts through fire because when I was pregnant with her, unbeknownst to me, I did not know I was pregnant with her. I was beat up by the <laughs> police at the Beijing airport. And so I think that there's so much more depth to these names. Mm-hmm. And um, I met this Sikh gentleman recently at the gym, and I said, what's your name? And he said, AC. And I said, what's your name? I said, your parents did not name you AC. What's your name? And he said, "Um, it's Amardeep. And I said, what does it mean? And it's this fucking like, well, I think his last name is Singh, right? But he said my full name means something like a lion, like, charging across planes of fire you know you know something like that and i said right. right and i said so do me i said go home and i want you to call your mother and tell her that you met a woman at the gym today who insists that you call yourself by your name Good. and wow. he did and he said my mom i was like did you tell your mom and he was like yeah my mom loved it of course she did but rightly so oh yeah. my, that is amazing so yeah what is it that, that you most dislike period yeah anything um, hatred hmm. uh, and you know hatred manifests in so many ways hatred manifests in children in cages hmm. hatred manifests in people 
not wanting you to, you know, be as great as you want to be. There's so many big and small ways hatred manifests in being called a chink or a jap or a gook. Hatred manifests in erasure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they did. it's an ugly phenomenon, and it's like water because it's powerful and it can go anywhere and it can creep under any door and get through any crack and any crevice, and we have to work so actively to combat it. You've already told us that you have no regrets, mm-hmm. but what is your greatest regret? <laughs> when I was shitty to my kids. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> when you, Thank you. Oh, the Vespa. Oh. oh you, have an, oh. Uh, you have a little moment with Finlong yeah. and a little the, silver Vespa. My son, like so many kids, used to, was, was, was Rafi into cars? He wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't as much As much, cars. right? But, um, he was mostly into his soccer balls. Yes, the soccer. But <laughs> yeah, lots of little boys really get into toys and um, into toy cars and trucks and stuff. Like they're obsessed when they're around two or three and they memorize all of them. And he had, you know, he kind of had every little matchbox car and everything and one of my ex's students came back from Italy and she brought him this little silver Vespa. And we were like, oh my God, that's amazing because you couldn't get those here. Right. And one night, being impatient in a fit of rage, he wouldn't go to sleep. I just hurled that Vespa across the room and it just, and it broke irreparably. And I thought, oh, there's one for the couch. <laughs> so thank you, Ali. So you may, you make, we may get you another little silver Vespa and I'll send it to Jin Long and call it. Please. <laughs> you may remember. Uh, like, yeah, well, please, Mom, what yeah, are you talking about? Yeah, I don't remember anything. Exactly. And then <laughs> and then that'll trigger him. He'll be like, oh, 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 oh. He's in a fetal position under the bed and he won't come out. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, how would you like to die? Surrounded by friends and family. What is your motto? Humility and gratitude. And we have um, two more questions, actually. Carrie's going to ask you the first one, which we add to this questionnaire. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Because we always love the people who come on this podcast, we're particularly curious to know who they, and so in this case, whom you would most want to hear answer these questions on this podcast. Hmm. I'd love to hear Casey Lehman answer these questions. Cool. Have you read yeah. his memoir? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You recommended it on Facebook. That's why I got I it. I did. I literally, I read five pages, and this is only the intro, and I was like, I'm fucking throwing my computer out the window. I'm never writing again. Uh, right. <laughs> Hate that. It's <laughs> devastating. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah. That's a great yeah. answer. Thank you. And mm-hmm. the second question, since we have Christina in the room here, so sh- she's a student, is there anything like advice you would give to a young person? Oh, God, there's so much advice I give to a young person, <laughs> particularly a young woman. I think the top advice I would give to you is educate yourself about fertility. Um, I'm not telling you to have children. I'm telling you to educate, if, if it is something you think about, to educate yourself. Uh, we are in the prime of our fertility at 22, which is when you'll graduate. It starts to decline a little bit steadily, and at 27, it starts to decline more quickly, and then at 35, it's the drop-off is precipitous. And I tell you this because I have so many friends who, when they turned 40, had a great career and had lots of fun and traveled the world and everything, and they looked at their watch and they said, oh, fuck, I'm 40. 
And I, I don't know if I remember, uh, somebody once told me, actually somebody from NYU told her the statistic, I think that 75% of our eggs are damaged by the time we're 40. And so if you think about the things that you want to achieve, you will not have achieved them by 35. You won't, right? <clears throat> and the sacrifice of a mother is far greater than that of a father. So again, this is not me urging people to have children. The planet cannot sustain everybody having children, but I think that fertility is a conspiracy of silence. When I do public speaking and I ask the women in the room, how many of you were told how not to get pregnant? Everybody shoots up their hand. And the second question is, how many of you were taught about your fertility? One in 10? if not 20. Mm -hmm. Were you taught? Did no, anybody? Certainly not. No, no, and then it's the shocking thing when yeah. you're in your mid-30s and yeah. someone is like, by the way. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, do yeah. you, did you, re how the fuck, we didn't even talk about it amongst ourselves. No, at least now I think. Yes, it's cra it, it, it's cracking do. open, but it's really, it's, um, it's really sad for many, many, many of my friends that They've had these otherwise stellar lives, and again, only for the ones that wanted to have children that are now looking like. I have a friend who recommends um, that women start freezing their eggs at 27 because the older you get, obviously, the less viable your ovarian reserve is. Right. 27? Shit, I moved to New York. 22. 27, I got my first job, industry job. You think I was thinking about having children? It couldn't have been further from my mind. Yeah, sure. It couldn't have been. That's one thing. The other thing I would recommend is learn how to negotiate. Because women, I think, I don't know about your generation, but certainly my generation, we were not taught to talk about money. We were not taught to value ourselves. We were sure shit not taught to how, how to negotiate and learn how to read a contract. Because if you are ambitious, and I assume that you are, you're at NYU, you will continue to ascend. And as you ascend depending on what discipline you're in, you will be presented with a contract. And you want to know how to read that contract. I'm not saying to negotiate it yourself, but if you know how to read that contract, you will be so much more empowered. And then you can have a conversation with your attorney about what it is that you want. Well, Learn how to negotiate. Thank you. You're welcome. Sophia, thank you so much for thank joining us Thank you so us much today. for having me. This was so great. We loved talking to you.